This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Now, if you don't believe in the Blair Witch, then why the hell did you bother to come? I thought the movie was cool. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in from Los Angeles, California. Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more with your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. For the Boo Crew, this is Trevor on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo. Welcome to episode 196. This time around, we check into the brand new series, Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel with award-winning and Oscar-nominated filmmaker and documentarian Joe Berlinger. At time of release, available exclusively on Netflix February 10th. Hear about the mysterious disappearance of college student Elisa Lamb and delve into the hotel's dark history. Explore the more bizarre coincidences with this particular case and so much more. If this conversation is interesting to you, we suggest you also revisit episode 192 with Tiller Russell discussing the Night Stalker, episode 115 with former LAPD homicide detective Robert Souza, and episode 10 with exorcist R.H. Stavis. Episode 196 starts now. Hey everyone, I'm Joe Berlinger, and you're investigating another episode of The Boo Crew. A hotel with a notorious past is the site of another bizarre case. Elisa Lamb from Vancouver, Canada is missing. The big unanswered question is, where is she? The last footage that we had of her was inside the elevator. That's where the case starts to go askew. She kept looking outside the door. Why is the elevator not going anywhere? Is someone keeping her here? Her hand movements are very strange and erratic. Like she's conjuring a spirit. It makes people wonder, is there something evil going on here? Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is an incredibly impactful filmmaker and storyteller. His fearlessness and inventive approach has ignited both fiction and nonfiction genres, has inspired thought, conversation, and real-world change. His ability to fully immerse us in a narrative is studied in schools across the country. It is what led him to no less than 83 awards, including multiple Emmys, the Peabody, and an Oscar nomination. 1992's Brothers Keeper is listed by the New York Times as one of the top 1,000 movies ever made. His 1996 exploration into the case of the West Memphis Three, Paradise Lost, created the blueprint for true crime documentaries. It also sparked a movement that ended up freeing three wrongfully convicted men after almost two decades. He reinvented the rockumentary with Metallica, Some Kind of Monster. His film Crude was instrumental in creating incredible awareness of the issue of oil pollution in the Amazon rainforest. He directed the remarkable TV series Iconoclasts from 2005 to 2012, each episode mashing up two visionaries from different worlds and was a masterful look into the element of creativity. In 2019, he brought us Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy Tapes, the highest rated nonfiction film of that year, and at the same time, the feature Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, starring Zac Efron and Lily Collins, based on the case and the relationship between Bundy and his former girlfriend, Elizabeth Kendall. 
This filmmaker has an incredible way of putting the viewer in the driver's seat, setting you in the middle of a storm of circumstances, following the lights amidst the chaos, and giving you the tools to draw your own conclusions, really making you a part of the experience. His latest is a four-part series called Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. At time of release, it's available exclusively on Netflix. February 10th, we are honored to welcome Joe Berlinger. Yeah! Wow. Yeah. wow, that guy sounds cool. I need you to be my agent or something. Holy <laughs> Joe, man, thank you so much for joining us. Now, the yeah. story of Elisa Lamb is one that if you know the legend and the lore, you pass it along, you share it with others. The sheer synchronicity and mystery surrounding the case is not almost unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Tell us about the way you first found out about this case and what made it interesting to you. Yeah, you know, it is an incredible story. I mean, I I remember seeing the elevator footage along with everybody else uh, in 2013, and it just it was mind boggling. But was was even more fascinating was just why did it go viral? Why were so many people so fascinated by it? And, you know, all the different theories and leaning into the paranormal that so many people leaned into. So I was, I was intrigued by all of that. I can't say that I wanted to make a film about it back then. I think in 2013, I was uh, finishing up my Paul Simon film or something. But, uh, you know, I, I just I remember it. And then more recently, the, uh, a guy named Josh Dean, who's a journalist who's written some articles in Medium about the case, you know, had the idea of maybe covering it as a doc series, because now we're in the, in the golden age of doc series, which is pretty amazing. I mean, you know, when I started with Brothers Keeper in 90, well, it came out January of 92. But in those days, if you didn't sell your documentary to HBO or PBS, you weren't making a documentary and there was no such thing as doc series. And I couldn't imagine that things would become what they are today, where because of Netflix and streaming and pursuing a global audience and the popularity, not just of true crime, but of docs in general, it's just amazing. So, you know, a story I had thought about in 2013, but didn't think I necessarily would want to do anything about when it was brought to me again during this era, it kind of spoke to me as a way of, you know, doing a really interesting take on this story because we live in an era where truth is very elusive, you know, to to put it mildly. Um, And this story is rife with conspiracy theory and rife with circumstantial evidence, but what is the actual truth? And so looking at it from that lens, I thought would be, you know, not just to tell the Elisa Lamb story, but to pull back and to tell a larger story as an ongoing series. What is it about a place that contributes to a crime or the perception of a crime and to dissect a location of crime from a socioeconomic standpoint? And it's something that's always intrigued me, you know, on a certain level, you know, what is it about South Boston that produced a Whitey Bulger, you know, which is a subject of one of my films? What is it about Seattle and the Pacific Northwest that would create a Ted Bundy? What was it about West Memphis, Arkansas in the early 90s that would allow an entire community to believe this incredibly unsupported story that these satanic devil worshiping murderers, you know, teenage murderers, you know, did a satanic ritual of three, eight year olds in the woods. What is it about 
circumstances and places that contribute to this perception. So baking all that in, you know, we thought, you know, we could tell a story that's been told before, but tell it in a different way. We live in the Los Angeles area. We're very familiar with the infamous Cecil Hotel, which is a major character in Elisa's story. Just talk a bit about the fascinating history of that place. Yeah, you know, um, uh, there was a time when downtown L.A. was the place, you know, it was the hip and happening and, and central area. And in the, I think, 1924, the Cecil Hotel opened its doors it was, you know, a state-of-the-art hotel for the business traveler. You know, back then, it, it had a rich and illustrious history. And then over the decades, as, as that part of town fell into disrepair, the, so, so did the hotel, but it always stayed in business. And eventually, you know, in the 60s, because of all sorts of Los Angeles policies about creating a skid row area and releasing people from mental institutions in the 70s, it just you know, the neighborhood just became really sketchy. And so the hotel became a bit of a flop house uh, for people. This once great storied hotel fell on, on hard times and became what's called an SRO. So, you know, people who really have no place to turn can, you know, book a room for a week at a very inexpensive price. And that be- kind of became the fate of the hotel until the, you know, the mid 2000s, somebody bought the hotel and tried to upgrade it and, you know, Elisa Lamb checked into that whole hotel in 2013, not knowing this long history where this hotel, because of its, you know, kind of sketchy nature over a long period of time, was the home to multiple serial killers. For example, Richard Ramirez used to camp out there and, you know, come back after his kills covered in blood and nobody seemed to care. Another serial killer named uh, Jack Unterweger, this Austrian uh, serial killer, used it as a as a hangout. There were fa- other famous murders and suicides. So when this Canadian tourist, this 21-year-old Canadian tourist, checked into the hotel and then disappeared and stopped communicating with her family, which caused the family to be alarmed and to reach out to the LAPD, uh, they went in, into high gear to do a missing persons investigation. And they discovered this elevator footage of her acting strangely in the elevator. It was the last known footage of her because there was no footage of her leaving the hotel after that moment. And so the police knew that they had the last known footage of her gesticulating strangely in this elevator. And so to help, you know, days into the investigation with no leads, they released it to the public to see if anyone could identify having interacted with her. And the release of that video uh, was then, you know, embraced by a lot of, about, by the online community. And the video ended up, which was not what the LAPD expected, ended up going viral and created this um, community of people who believed that, you know, they had a mission to solve her crime. And just a fascinating set of circumstances. Before we get deeper into this story, I just want to know, what is the current state of the hotel? Is it open, closed? What's going on with it right now? The hotel is currently closed. It was sold to some investors and there's plans to turn it into something else. It is still a residence for some long-term residents, but it's in a state of transition. In your research and uh, conversations with city officials or law enforcement, was it ever discussed how a hotel like this stays open and functional 
throughout the years with all these deaths and prostitution, drug use and violent crimes? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, sadly, like many aspects of, you know, the social hierarchy, the the police didn't really pay much attention. This was a, you know, area of Los Angeles that was in a you know, state of disrepair. The hotel provided a service by being a, you know, an SRO for low income people you know, or indigent people who really needed a place to stay. Uh, the hotel was never proven to be responsible for any of these crimes. And so, you know, it just, it just kept going. The Boo Crew will be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Prepare yourself for an unbelievable night of uncontrollable fear <laughs> as Filmways presents the, the Monster, Monster Mayhem, Mayhem Marathon. Marathon. Three incredibly scary shock shows, five full hours of non-stop nightmares. <coughs> Tales from the Crypt, the most honored horror film in history. They came from within, a night of creeping crazy terror and the incredible Melton Man. Three blood-curdling films filled with crawling terror, macabre madness, and horror. Three shockers for the price of only one, and free to everyone brave enough to try it. A Fright Protection Card and a Monster Mayhem Club membership card, plus your chance to register for a free year's pass to the theater. No purchase necessary. The, the Monster, Monster Mayhem, Mayhem Marathon. Marathon. If you live through it, you'll never be the same. <laughs> From Filmways, rated R. We were shocked and taken aback by what is presented in the film and the elements of the case that kind of got blurred by the urban myth of it all and new things that you reveal that haven't made it into the lore as of yet, which was fascinating to experience. How much of the details of Elisa's story were you aware of going into this and how much a part of having the breadcrumb trail reveal itself to you along the way is the experience for you? Um, well, honestly, most of the, most of the, uh, you know, well, certain stuff we had to learn by doing the show, we had to convince Pablo Vergara, for example, the, the, the death metal guy who was accused of the murder. He never, he hasn't spoken to anybody and we had to, you know, convince a few people to participate who have not participated before, but the general thrust of the show and the outcome of the case, I was pretty convinced of before we started shooting and so, it, but it was important to me to give, and you kind of nicely noted it in my intro, you know, I do like to give the viewer the experience of an unfolding drama. So even though this is a past tense story, it kind of has that cinema verite feel of kind of unfolding, you know, before you. And so I wanted to give the viewer the experience of what people who were obsessed with the case at the time, who were covering the case and following it, you know, I, I, you know, but basically selectively withholding certain facts so that the audience could have the same experience that people covering the case had. 
Oh, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, the film presents itself in a very compelling way by bringing to life Elisa's real-life Tumblr entries and pulling people literally out of news clips that you see, putting them in your living rooms. In terms of the mechanics of going through all this footage and putting it together, what is your end goal? How do you know when you've gotten to that alchemy of presenting the facts that you're talking about, but still giving us that feel of exploration? Great question. It's a constant tension. You know, how much do you reveal at this point? How do you thread those needles? How do you keep people coming back for other episodes? So it's, it's hard to explain, but it's, you know, there's a, you know, I have a great team with me and great editors and collaborators and, you know, we, we try different things, but at the end of the day, you know, it is a series. So you want to kind of hang, you, know, you want to end each episode on a cliffhanger and give people a reason for wanting to come back. And, you know, it was very important that by the, that we explore all the various theories so that when we actually present what happens in the fourth episode, you have this larger context to understand how people could have jumped to these, these wrong conclusions because we live in times where truth is under assault, where conspiracy theories are prevalent, where members of Congress believe that there's a Jewish death ray causing California wildfires. I mean, these are the times we live in. So to understand how we get to these conspiracy theories, to understand the context of them, I think was, you know, a major goal of the show. How did it feel being at the Cecil? It's important not to like, you know, with the show, it's important not to continue to mythologize the Cecil in some way. So to me, I was just very clinical about it. It was, uh, we obviously shot quite a bit of the exterior and its, its environment. But, uh, you know, I was there to kind of demythologize all of this lore. So, you know, it was interesting to shoot the hotel, but, um, you know, I didn't feel like, you know, some dark nexus of evil energy because that was the whole point of, of what we were trying to kind of pull apart and show that it's dangerous actually to, ascribe things to a location that don't really exist because everything is very explainable. I mean, that's one of the ironies you know, of the show is I don't know how much of a spoiler we want to give here, but uh, you know, the outcome is not what you expect. And that was kind of the, kind of the whole point is that there's a lot of things that people believe about this case that just, just aren't true. It's funny because in 2000, you crafted an incredible sequel to the Blair Witch Project, and it was really groundbreaking and unexpected, which is what we loved so much about it. It spun the first film into and through itself and became this exploration into pop culture and these characters who get so caught up in the lore that they blindly confuse myth with reality. Talk a a little bit about how those elements ring true with this very documentary. That is a great point, and I have to give you credit for being one of the few people to say something positive about that oh, movie. Oh, man, it's great. It's one of the best horror sequels probably ever made. Widely misunderstood because people wanted to, to continue to... to uh, what I underestimated is that I, Blair Witch fans, I think, just wanted the mythology to continue. And I thought it was absurd to continue the mythology of... You know, we saw Heather, Josh, and Mike on the cover of Time and Newsweek and on the David Letterman show. So how could you continue the found footage conceit <laughs> of the show and have it be credible? Um, I also wanted to make a social commentary about the dangers of blurring the line, you know, between fiction and reality. I, I wish I knew just how prescient that idea would become today where we have seen the full, the full-blown death of truth. 
But back then, it was mind-boggling to me that all the media was celebrating the hoax of that movie. You know, people were told it was a real documentary. All the marketing said it was a real documentary. People went in tricked thinking it was a real documentary. And then even though they saw the stars of the film, you know, doing press tours, they still, some people still believed it had to be true. And so, uh, so my sequel was an attempt to make a commentary on the, you know, on the dangers of blurring the lines between fiction and reality, because if you blur them enough, we, we will never know what is actually true. And I think that's where society has landed. And that's very much in keeping with the themes that we're trying to bring out in this telling of the Elisa Lam case, because, you know, again, I don't want to spoil it for people, but there's some really fascinating coincidences, you know, the, the Lam Eliza test for tuberculosis, for example, um, that we talk about. The hotel's very history in connecting her to a crime. But as you see by the end of the show or end of the series, we see the reality of what all that means. And again, I'm trying to be careful here and not spoil it for people who haven't seen it. But, you know, you get a whole new perspective and you understand that, for example, one of the people we speak to in the show uh, who's never spoken to anybody before was one of the one of the suspects and was accused of murder you know, a death metal musician and was accused of these murders and it kind of destroyed his life. And so the negative effects of not telling the truth had a deep impact on his particular life. And just hearkening back to your original question, that was, that was what I was trying to say with the Blair Witch 2 sequel is like the dangers of, of not being able to st- distinguish between fiction and reality. Yeah. Since you mentioned demythologizing some bits of the story, Regarding the elevator video, uh, the time code and slowing down of the video, was it ever determined by the LAPD why they did not release the full unedited video? Yeah, that was the family requested that the full video not be released. Uh, But the time code, there's easy explanations about the time code. They don't want certain information in an investigation to be out there. So that was one, one element of it. That's been looked at. And to me, there's no relevancy there. Is the crime scene uh, series from Netflix something that you're going to be continued to be involved with? You betcha. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, well, since we brought it to them and they and if they are pleased with my work, which I hope they will be and are, uh, we will be continuing it. No, and I'm just I'm, I'm just having a little fun. Yes. I mean, we pitched them as an ongoing series and it's something I definitely want to be involved in. And in fact, we've already started see, uh, shooting season two, despite the lockdowns. We're in production on season two. Can't tell you where that's going to be quite yet, but uh, we will go to another place that has a history of crime or the perception thereof. Very interesting. Very cool. Now, I know there's rumors about upcoming work that you're doing with Clive Barker. Is there any truth to that? And what can we expect from that? Honestly, uh, that's a project that's kind of been put on the shelf. Unfortunately, it's, it's, there's some legal issues, but um that's actually not not on the docket anytime soon, unfortunately. Got it. Do you have another narrative horror feature in you? I, I have definitely have um, pushing along some uh, narrative projects, but, um, you know, I think uh, probably not in the horror space. Perfect. Well, man, thank you so much again for taking the time to talk yes. to us about it. We absolutely love the documentary. We're a huge fan of your yes. work. Oh, man, yeah. I appreciate it.
You guys, I'm going to fire CAA. You guys are my agents. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 196. Special thanks to our guest, Joe Berlinger. Follow at Joe Berlinger Films on Instagram and at Joe Berlinger on Twitter. Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel is available exclusively on Netflix at time of release, February 10th. Production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Moon. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shands and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shands, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shands. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.